Good morning. Am I on, John? Yes? Okay. Wonderful. The passage that my son Andrew just read, we will actually come back and explore next week. I had it read this week to begin setting the stage uh, both for this message and next week's message. As we continue our study of the book of Haggai, as you know, that book focuses on the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem after Solomon's temple was destroyed. And that's why I had that passage in Second Chronicles read. Well, last week, we traced the history of Israel through the Old Testament. We looked not only at the events of that history, but also the significance of those events as a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. And by the way, there were a couple of errors in the timeline that I gave you last week. I had a couple of misprints in the dates. I will correct that for you next week. And anybody who wants a copy of that timeline, we will provide it for you. This week, I'd like to continue laying our foundation for the book of Haggai by focusing on the central topic of his book, and that is the temple of God. The temple that Zerubbabel and the Israelites would build under the encouragement of the prophet Haggai was what we call today the second temple. And in order to understand the importance of the second temple, I want to trace the history of God's temple through the scriptures from the very beginning to the end. Now, as we track God's temple through time, we'll be discussing three matters. First, we'll make a quick survey of the temple in history. Second, we'll consider the theology of God's temple. And finally, we'll examine why rebuilding the temple was so important in Haggai's time. Please join me in prayer. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask once again that by the work of your spirit within us, we would come to think your thoughts after you, that our minds would be renewed, and that our perspective would become closer to yours. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, Let's start by surveying the temple <clears throat> through history before we actually look at the sequence of temples that we see in Scripture. I want to talk briefly about the nature of temples in general. Now, we know from archaeological studies in the ancient Near East, the portion of the world where Israel is located, that temples for worshiping deities were very common. Virtually every culture and every group of people had a temple in the ancient Near East. Now, the temple was some kind of a building, and in that building there would be an idol or an image representing the local deity. And according to the typical theology of these pagan religions, the local god owned the land of the people. And in order to secure that God's blessing and to make the land fertile, the people would worship the God and they would make sacrifices in the temple where his idol was housed. 
Now, when I say that, you probably recognize that there are some similarities between the pagan concept of a temple and the temple of God, but there are obviously some very significant differences. Now, the first difference is that a pagan temple or house of God, small g, would always contain an idol. The idol would be a carved and decorated image of the local deity. In contrast, the true God, the God of Israel, capital G, absolutely forbade the use of images. There never was an image of the true God in his temple. Now, secondly, pagan gods were considered to be dependent upon their worshipers. Pagan sacrifices were essentially food for the gods. There was a kind of a symbiotic relationship between the people who worshipped this local deity and the deity himself. It was as if the god said to them, you meet my needs and I'll meet your needs. Now, in contrast, the true god of Israel needed nothing from his worshippers. Their sacrifices were given as expressions of praise and thanksgiving or as a means of seeking God's forgiveness for sins. They were never regarded as food for God as if he needed them or as providing anything else that God needed from man. Now, thirdly, pagan religions of the ancient Near East, and this is also true today, often encouraged immorality and other sinful actions, and that was reflected in their sacrifices. Now, the pagans would typically offer plant and animal sacrifices. They would often offer fully cooked meals. They'd actually put a plate in front of the idol, you know, turkey, mashed potatoes, um, you know, uh, cranberry dressing. You laugh at this, but those of you who have been to Asia have seen this in the stores and things, you'll go into a store in Asia and there will actually be an idol up on the shelf and a plate of food fixed just as it was fixed for a human being sitting in front of that idol. But the pagan sacrifices went further. They went into wickedness and immorality. Many of the pagan religions involved offering human sacrifice, both willing and unwilling, children and adults. Many of the pagan religions involve the performing of ritual sex acts as essentially entertainment for the gods that were in those temples. Now, in contrast, Israel's God was and is perfectly holy, and he expected holy living from his people, and he expected his sacrifices to be holy. The only sacrifices that he would allow in his temple were sacrifices of a type specified by him, and they must be untainted by sin or corruption, and they must be offered by worshipers who are cleansed of sin. Now, the fourth and final difference I'd like to emphasize between the pagan temple and the true temple of God is that pagan temples were dedicated to local deities, local deities, The gods that the pagans worshipped were regarded as having power only in a limited territory and only in limited spheres, such as warfare or fertility or the weather. Now, in contrast, 
Israel's God was and is omnipresent and omnipotent. His power was not and is not limited in space or in time or in any sphere. And although Israel's God, our God, specified that his temple was to be located in a particular place, that in no way suggests that his power was limited to that particular area. Our God is the God over all of creation from one end of the universe to another. And so you can see that although there are some similarities between the pagan idea of a temple and the proper biblical concept of a temple, they are really very different. All right, well, let's turn our attention now to the temple or house of God as we see it in Scripture and in history. I see at least six different temples in Scripture. The first one was the portable tabernacle. The second was Solomon's temple. The third was the second temple. I know that sounds strange. The fourth was Herod's temple. The fifth is the spiritual temple. And the sixth is the future millennial temple. Let's look at each one of these. Now, the first temple, as you know, was the portable tabernacle that God, that God had Israel build for him at Mount Sinai. The Israelites left Egypt in 1446 BC. They spent almost two years at the base of Mount Sinai, where God instructed them and trained them in his ways and in his law. And there they built the tabernacle. The description of the tabernacle and all the articles that were to be placed in it are found in Exodus chapters 25 through 31. Now, the original tabernacle, that tabernacle, was in use roughly from about 1444 B.C., the year in which it was built, until around 960 B.C. when Solomon built his temple. It was almost 500 years. I've always wondered what condition the tabernacle was in after 500 years. Did they repair it as time went on? I suspect that they did, but I wonder if it had some moth holes. Israel carried the tabernacle with them through their wilderness wanderings, and they then had it with them through the time of the judges. It was first kept at Shiloh. That's recorded in Joshua chapter 18. Then it was moved to a place called Nob. You can see that in 1 Samuel 21. And then it was kept at a place called Gibeon, and that's mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Now, what's interesting to me is that Scripture doesn't really tell us whether or not sacrifices were offered continuously during that whole time at the tabernacle. We do know from 2 Samuel chapter 6 that David brought the ark from Gibeon to Jerusalem after his kingdom was established, and he placed it in a temporary tabernacle there. And in particular, from that time until the time that Solomon built his temple, I don't know whether Israel was offering sacrifices at the tabernacle. The other thing that we don't know, and we don't really need to know it, but I'm kind of curious, is what did they do with that tabernacle when Solomon's temple was built? Don't know the answer. Don't ask me. I can't tell you. Now, that leads us on to the first permanent temple, and that was 
the temple that Solomon built. Now, humanly speaking, the idea to build this temple came from King David. Let me read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. Now, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Now, you probably know what happened next. God, through the prophet David, essentially said to him, Your desire to build a temple for me is good, but because you are a man of warfare and because there is blood on your hands, you cannot be the one to do it. Your son Solomon will build the temple for me. Now, it's quite fascinating if you look in Scripture and see how many chapters are devoted to the preparation for and construction of Solomon's temple. It's a lot. In 1 Chronicles, it's chapters 22, 28, and 29 that discuss David's preparation to build the temple. In 2 Chronicles, chapters 2 through 7 record Solomon's building project and the dedication of the temple. And 1 Kings, chapters 5 through 8, give another record of Solomon building and dedicating the temple. That's 13 chapters, and you can see that this is a very important thing in the mind of God because of the space that he devotes to it. And next week, we're going to spend some time looking at Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple and also at the passage that we read this morning. But before we move on to consider the second temple, the temple that would replace Solomon's temple, I want to read to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 14 through 16. Now, what I'm going to read to you is a listing of what David prepared for the building of Solomon's temple. Listen to what he prepared. First Chronicles chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. David says to Solomon, Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond all measure, for it is so abundant. I prepared timber and stone also that you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, hewers and workers of stone and timber and all types of skillful men for every kind of work. Of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you. Now, just to give you some perspective on this, a talent is about 66 pounds. 66 pounds. David had collected 6.6 million pounds of gold and 66 million pounds of silver. And I did a rough calculation in my head. I probably got it wrong, but that figures out to over $100 billion worth of precious metals that were prepared for Solomon's temple. 
in modern terminology, for those of you who think in these terms, that is 50 B-2 bombers. This was a lot of wealth. A lot of wealth. Now, Solomon's temple was glorious beyond what I can imagine. Just thinking about the materials that went into it, it's very impressive. The wealth that was lavished on constructing that temple. And remember, the listing I just read you doesn't include the offerings that the people made of gold and silver. That wealth was enormous. That wealth meant that Israel's temple was a target for every nation that thought of invading Israel. Now, the temple, Solomon's temple, was looted at various times in history. It was looted both by the kings of Judah, who at times stripped gold off of it to pay for their wars. It was looted by foreigners. And ultimately, it was looted and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 when Jerusalem fell. Now, when you think about the opulence of Solomon's temple, I think it's clear that whatever the second temple, the temple that Zerubbabel and his fellows built, paled by that in comparison. They couldn't possibly have had a tiny fraction of the wealth that went into the first temple. In their eyes, the second temple must have seemed terribly insignificant. And yet, as we will see, as we continue to study the book of Haggai, in God's eyes, the second temple was extremely important. And so now we come to the third of the temples, the temple we call the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. As you know, as we just reviewed, Solomon's temple was destroyed and looted in 586 B.C., And then in 538 B.C., after the Persians and the Medes had conquered the Babylonian Empire and taken over their territory, King Cyrus made a decree, which we read last week. He decreed that all the Jews in his empire who wished to could gather up whatever they had and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. See, God used this Gentile king to fulfill the hopes and the prayers of those faithful Jews who during their time in Babylon had ached and mourned knowing that Jerusalem lay in ruins and that the temple had been destroyed. Now, next week we'll look at Daniel's prayer also. In Daniel chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter, in the year 539... Daniel prayed that God would act for the restoration of the city and the temple, and it was in 538 that Cyrus made this decree. Now, the response to Cyrus's decree was immediate. If you will, turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. Right after the decree, there's a quick record of the response of the people. Ezra chapter 1, verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all those whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, 
which is in Jerusalem. Now, if you'd turn over, you don't need to, but if you'd turn to the end of Ezra chapter 2, you would discover that it was about 42,000 who returned to Jerusalem. That's probably the count of the number of men. They obviously took their wives and their children with them. Now, stop and think with me for a moment. 42,000 men with their wives and children, a conservative estimate, let's say 100, 120,000 people left the territory of the Persians, which had been the empire of the Babylonians, and returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. We don't know how many Jews were living in Babylon at that time. We do know, however, that the Babylonians, for the most part, had treated the Jews quite well during their time of sojourn there. Now, if you will, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Most of his ministry was in the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And shortly before Jerusalem fell, Jeremiah sent a letter to those who were already in Babylon, and his advice to them was to settle down, to get comfortable, and let me read what he says. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7. He says, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. Remember, he's talking about living in Babylon when they are cast out of their own land. And he says in verse 7, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. Now the evidence of history is that the Jews increased and flourished in Babylon after they were cast out of Israel. And if you go to Iraq and Iran today, you'll be surprised to find that there are lots of Jews living there. Those are descendants of those who left their own land by force at the hands of the Babylonians when Jerusalem was destroyed. They multiplied. Many of them became wealthy. Some of them became powerful. We know of one of them, right? The prophet Daniel. And I think what happened to them there is evidence of God's promise of blessing and protection in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the reason I point this out is that it took an enormous step of faith for those people who had been in Babylon, many of them for 70 years, to pick up and leave their homes and leave their security, leave the place that they knew and return to Jerusalem in order to build the temple. Most of them had grown up in Babylon. They had enjoyed comfort, security, and prosperity 
in Babylon. And to leave Babylon and to go to Jerusalem meant leaving those things behind to go live in a city that stood deserted and unfortified. The Babylonians had perforated the wall, and in the ancient world, your protection was the wall around the city. And that wall offered no protection at all. My personal opinion is that that group that returned was a distinct minority, a very small portion of those who were living in Babylon. Why did they go? According to Ezra 1.5, they went because God's Spirit moved them to leave security, to leave comfort and prosperity, and instead to seek God's favor and God's glory in rebuilding the temple. So they made that long and dangerous journey to Jerusalem. They set up housekeeping in the ruins of the city. They moved into burned-out shells of homes that had once been beautiful. And they began to work on a new foundation for the new temple. Now back to Ezra, chapter 3. Let me read, starting in verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, who were old men, who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many others shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people." For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. As we'll see next week, construction was halted soon after this event, soon after the foundation of the temple was laid. It would not be resumed for another 15 years. But what I want to emphasize right now is that Zerubbabel's temple, as these old men who remembered the old temple recognized, would never approach the glory of Solomon's temple. It surely paled in comparison, both in size, in building materials, in beauty. And it's interesting that there's virtually no description of the second temple. We don't know exactly what it looked like, how much gold or silver went into it, And yet that second temple was extraordinarily important to God. And we'll return in a few minutes to discuss why it was so important. Well, this leads us to the next temple, what I call the updated temple, Herod's temple. King Herod the Great reigned over Israel 
from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. He undertook a massive rebuilding, remodeling, essentially, project in which he took that second temple, made it larger, and enclosed it in a big complex of many buildings. His plan was monumental. He began the work, and it was still underway in A.D. 64. Now remember, Christ went to the cross in A.D. 33. It was in A.D. 70 that the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem again and destroyed Herod's temple. So Herod's temple only stood for six years complete before it was destroyed. Now, Herod's temple was quite impressive, and there was a good amount of gold in it. Some historians believe that our Lord's prediction from Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, was fulfilled in the looting of that temple. Jesus said, speaking of the temple, not one stone shall be left here upon another. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they went in, they looted the temple, and then they burnt it. They hadn't gotten all the gold out of it. And the burning caused the gold to melt and to run down among the foundation stones. And many historians have reported that the German, I'm sorry, not the German, the Roman soldiers went in there with crowbars and pried those rocks apart to get that last bit of gold that had melted and run down into the foundation. Now, perhaps the greatest significance of Herod's temple is that it is the temple that was on this earth when our Lord walked on this earth during his first coming ministry. It was in the Holy of Holies of that temple that the curtain was ripped in two when our Lord died on the cross. It was in Herod's temple precincts that the Holy Spirit came visibly upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And it was to Herod's temple, which the writer of the Hebrews was alluding when he said that the old Levitical system had become obsolete with the coming of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that leads us to the next temple, the spiritual temple, man himself. I think the first human who could truly and without exception say, I am the temple of God, was our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, let me see if I can find it. Our Lord said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But John says, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, in the prologue to his gospel, John writes some similar and very important words. Look at verse 14. They refer back to the original portable tabernacle. 
John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's very interesting. The verb in the phrase, he dwelt among us, that verb, he dwelt, is literally, he tabernacled among us, or he tented among us. In a very real sense, like the first temple, the portable tabernacle, our Lord Jesus Christ was and still is a portable temple of God, a temple that can move. Now, of course, he's not the only one now who can say, I am God's temple, is he? All who have been saved by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are God's temple. He dwells in each one of us in the person of his Holy Spirit. And no longer must we go to a special place in order to enter the temple of God. Instead, what do we do? We take the temple wherever we go. Now, that should be a sobering thought for each one of us, and it is for me. Where you go... God in you goes. What you see, God in you sees. What you hear, God in you hears. What you experience, God in you experiences. The next time you encounter temptation, stop and think about that. It'll help you. It has helped me. Well, you might think that with the coming of Christ, the coming of his indwelling Holy Spirit within believers, the need for a temple in the form of a physical building would be ended. But surprisingly, Scripture says otherwise. In fact, there will be one and possibly two more temples to God. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 9, from Matthew 24, and from 2 Thessalonians 2, don't turn there, we know that during the future time of the tribulation, there will be a temple standing in Jerusalem. We know that the Antichrist, in the middle of the tribulation, will enter into that temple. He will go into the Holy of Holies. He will desecrate that temple by saying, from this moment forward, I am God, and from this moment forward, no one worships anyone but me. Exactly when that temple will be built, we don't know. It could be built before the tribulation begins. It could be built during those first early years of the tribulation. Now, you may know that today in Israel, there is a movement to rebuild a new temple. Persistent rumors claim that most or all of the materials have already been gathered, and some even say that those materials have been cut and prepared in such a way that when the right moment comes, those temple builders will go into Jerusalem to the Temple Mount, 
and they will assemble that temple without the sound of a hammer or a saw, kind of like putting together a giant building made out of Lego blocks. I don't know whether that's true, but the rumors are persistent. Could that temple, which they want to be to build, be the temple of which Daniel speaks? Perhaps. Will it be built in our lifetime? Possibly. Could that mean that the end times are near? Only time will tell. Now we also know from Ezekiel's prophecy, from chapters 40 through 48, that Ezekiel predicted that a great temple will stand in Jerusalem in the future during Christ's millennial reign. Now, personally, I believe that that prophecy is a literal prophecy, and I take at face value the prediction that sacrifices and offerings will be made in that temple. Now, some people have trouble with the idea that there will be sacrifices and offerings made to God in the future. What will that temple be like I don't know exactly. There is a description of it in Ezekiel. It's a little hard to put together the details from that description. If the predictions of that temple are to be taken literally, I think it would be suggesting that the sacrifices that will be offered there will look back in time toward the sacrifice our Lord made on the cross, cross, just as the sacrifices that were made before the cross looked forward in time to his sacrifice. Well, that completes our survey of the history of God's temple. I'd like to turn our attention now to the theology of the temple. I want to focus on five issues concerning the temple. Its designer, its inhabitant, its purpose, its exclusivity, and its removal in judgment. Keep your Bible handy because we'll be doing a lot of page flipping here. The first thing is the designer of God's temple is God himself. Scripture emphasizes repeatedly that God himself designed his various houses and that he insisted that men follow his instructions exactly. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, God gave these instructions to Moses. He said, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Now, God repeats that instruction to Moses five more times. And then in Exodus 32, after it is built, Moses records this, as the Lord had commanded Moses, so they built it. Now, for some reason, this is a lesser-known fact among believers, but God also provided the exact plans for Solomon's temple to King David. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 11 to 13. 1 Chronicles 28, verses 11 to 13. It says there, Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat. And the plans for all that he had by the Spirit. That's the key line. 
of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for the dedicated things, also for the division of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the articles of service in the house of the Lord. God specified also all the details of Solomon's temple, and not only what it was, how it was made and what went in it, but how it was to be operated. Now, there's a reason why the temple had to be built according to God's design in order to be acceptable to him. The reason is very simple. The temple is a model of the real dwelling place of God in heaven, and it reflects heavenly realities. Remember when Bob was teaching us in the book of Hebrews, we ran into this verse in chapter 8, verse 5, where the writer says that the tabernacle was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The key idea here is that God's design for his temple expresses the spiritual realities of what man must do in order to approach God acceptably. Now, Scripture is silent about the design of the second temple that Zerubbabel built and of Herod's temple. We do know that his specifications will be followed in the building of Ezekiel's temple. And especially, as we know, God's design was followed in the creating of the most important temple, the spiritual temple, which is what? It's us. What did God say when he designed the spiritual temple? He said, let us make man in our image. Now, secondly, the inhabitant of God's temple is God himself. The temple is his house, Now, the idea of God living in a temple is paradoxical, of course. Let's explore it a little bit. What is the temple? In essence, the temple is an earthly representation of the throne room of God. The Ark of the Covenant, that box that was maybe a little smaller than this table, was a representation of God's throne. Its lid was called the mercy seat. There were two angels that stood on opposite ends, stretching their wings above it as a covering, But in the middle, the space was empty. That empty space symbolized the presence of God. And the idea was that the invisible God was seated on his throne there. The structure of the tabernacle and the temple, all the things that were in it, all their proper use, communicated the idea that there was only one right way to approach God in his throne room. Now, the tabernacle and the temples were only models. They're only physical models of God's presence and his rule. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18, Solomon said, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. And so when we say that that God is the inhabitant of his temple, at least when we're talking about a physical building, we understand that his presence is not in any way limited or bounded 
by the place or the size of the building. Having said that, God was pleased, at least in the cases of the portable tabernacle and Solomon's temple, to dwell there. In each of the cases, when those were dedicated, the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple, what happened? We're told that the visible Shekinah glory of God filled the tabernacle, filled the temple, giving a visible evidence that God was pleased to dwell there in the sense that God dwells in a temple. Now, thirdly, the purpose of God's temple is man's access to and worship of God himself. Now, this truth is very obvious, and we'll return to it next week to explore it a little more deeply. So let's move on to the fourth truth. Did I just say fourth? That was third. The fourth one concerns the exclusivity of the temple. Here's the idea. The habitation of God's temple is limited to God himself. Now, what I mean by saying this is that God refuses to allow any other deity to be worshipped or served in his house. Now, pagan temples would often house a number of different deities. Again, if you've got familiarity or experience with pagan temples, you've seen they may have this idol and this idol and this idol, a number of them in the same building. But God refused to allow any other god to be worshipped by his people, and especially in his house. Now, if you read the book of Ezekiel, you know how Ezekiel chronicles how over time the people of Judah began to bring in objects devoted to other gods, and in time they began to worship other gods within his temple precincts and even within his temple. God refused to allow such flagrant sin and disrespect to continue And that's one of the reasons why he had Solomon's temple destroyed. That leads us to the fifth point that I'd like to discuss here. The destruction of Solomon's temple in 586, the destruction that led to the need for building the second temple that Zerubbabel built. The destruction of that temple was a judgment of God against his people. Now, let me say that again, that the destruction of the temple was a judgment of God against his people. That may seem obvious to you, but it wasn't obvious to the pagans, to the Gentiles who lived around Israel. You see, in the theology of the Gentiles, the destruction of someone else's temple was considered to be proof that the God who lived in that temple wasn't powerful enough to defend himself or his people. And when Nebuchadnezzar and his army conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple of Yahweh in 586, they believed that Yahweh had been proved powerless. And God, for a time, allowed them to think that. But God also began to demonstrate his power to the Gentile kings. Over time, King Nebuchadnezzar got a number of lessons regarding the power of the real God, didn't he? His first lesson was when his dream of the image was interpreted. 
His second lesson was when he threw the three young men into the fire because they wouldn't worship his image and they came out unsinged. His third lesson was when God made him eat grass and crawl on the ground like a cow for seven years before coming back to his senses. King Belshazzar learned of God's power when he was having a drunken party in his palace and a hand appeared writing on the wall saying, your days are numbered. And that very same night, the Medes and the Persians broke through, actually came under the wall of Babylon and conquered that city without firing a shot. Of course, there were no guns in that day, but you know what I'm talking about. King Darius, one of the kings of the Medes and the Persians, learned of God's power when Daniel was preserved in the lion's den. But the fact that Israel lived in bondage under the Gentiles did give opportunity for the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God and to ridicule his power. Now, this leads to a very important observation in my mind concerning the love of God for his people. When God allowed his city and his temple to be destroyed in 586, he knew that his name would be blasphemed. But he was willing to suffer that temporary shame because he loved his people Israel. God judged his people because he loved them, and he endured the taunts and the ridicule of the nations because he loved his people Israel. Put that all together, and what do you discover? You discover that although the destruction of the temple was a judgment on Israel, God suffered too. And he did it. He was willing to suffer in that way because he loves his people and because he's faithful to his promises. Promises not only to bless, but promises to discipline. Parents, future parents. I think we have an example that's worth consideration here. Have you ever held back from disciplining your child because you realize that disciplining him or her might make you look bad or bring shame on you? We need to keep the example of our Heavenly Father in view and be willing to discipline our children for their good according to their need even when doing so may bring us shame or embarrassment for a time. Now, I want to just make a few comments about why rebuilding the temple was important in Haggai's time, and then I will conclude. Why was it so important for Zerubbabel, I still can't say that word, Zerubbabel and his fellows to rebuild the temple? I think there are many reasons but I'd like to focus on just two. The first one was God's reputation, and the second one was Israel's need for fellowship with God and worship of God. Obviously, God's reputation stood in shambles when the city and the temple were destroyed. In Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel's prayer, this is what he said at the end of it. He said, oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your sake, for your city and your people are called by your name. God's reputation was at stake, and Daniel wisely appealed to it when he prayed. But the second reason why it was important to rebuild the temple was that Israel needed access to God, and the temple was God's provision for that access. Now, we tend to think of the temple primarily in terms of worship and sacrifice, and these were extraordinarily important parts of what went on in the temple. But equally important was the role of prayer and the the temple as the focus of prayer offered to God. Let me read to you from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, if I can find it, verses 21 through 31. 2 Chronicles 7, 21 through 31. Where am I? Okay. I've got the wrong, I've got the wrong listing there, but I've got it in my text here, so let me read it from my manuscript. Solomon is praying. I think it's chapter 6. He says, and thank you. He says, and may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place in heaven, and when you hear, forgive. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in the temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Or if your people or Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and return and confess your name before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. If you continue reading, what do you see? Over and over again, Solomon says, we will pray toward this house. We will pray in this house. God says, that's the place where your access to me should be focused. You see, God had said that the temple was the place to which the Israelites should go to seek his aid in prayer, to obtain forgiveness and cleansing from sin, and to worship him and share fellowship with him. Part of what made expulsion from the land and the destruction of the temple a judgment on the Israelites was that they could no longer do these things. Part of the problem was that without the temple, their special place of prayer was no longer available to them. And outside the land in Babylon, the people found themselves in terrible need of God's mercy and yet without the special place to go to to ask for it. That didn't mean they couldn't pray to him wherever they were, but that was a special place and it was not available to them. Now, next week, we're going to consider the specific events that led to Zerubbabel 
and his fellows undertaking the temple reconstruction. I want to finish with just three quick observations. Two of them are warnings, and one is an encouragement. The first warning is this. Is your theology of God's provision a pagan theology? Do you have a tit-for-tat idea in your head concerning God? If you think you can get God to give you what you want by giving him what he wants, your concept of God's provision is a little bit like that of the pagans. I think we all fall into this error at times. We need to remember that our Father in heaven is a good Father. He gives good things not to those who earn them, but to his children who ask for them independence and faith. Let's not insult God by thinking that we can manipulate him as the pagans thought that they could manipulate their gods. Now, the second warning is this. Do you feel about your life or your circumstances or your spiritual gifts like those who started to build the second temple felt when they saw the foundation of the second temple. Many of them were terribly discouraged. They felt they could never build anything that would glorify God as magnificently as Solomon's temple had done. And I believe that that discouragement was one of the reasons why they stopped in the middle of the project. You may feel like you have very little to offer to God, I know I feel that way sometimes. You may feel that you have very little for him to work with. Remember that just like those rebuilders in their generation, what God calls you to do in your generation is very important to him. And my last word is an encouragement. Do you realize what an incredible privilege we have to be living temples of the living God. God is with us. God is in us. We don't need to go anywhere to be in his presence. He is with us always. Let us rejoice that we are his temple and let us seek by his power to keep that temple holy, orderly, and engaged in the spiritual worship of service. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that through time you have always made a way for your people to have access to you. Thank you for the special privilege we have of living with your spirit and dwelling in us. Let us rejoice in that. Let us remember, though, that as we take him wherever we go, We need to be careful of our temples. We need to keep them holy. And we need to use them in your service and in things that please you. Please dismiss us now with your blessing. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.